Good morning. I was very glad to hear the question asked about communion, because although you think communion is a Christian holiday, really communion is something that is very Jewish. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, the interface between things that are Jewish and things that are Christian. So whoever asked the question about communion, that is an important question. And we're going to see by the end, certainly, of this time, how important Passover is to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and how communion came out of that. And perhaps um, maybe next year would be good to schedule a full-fledged Messiah in the Passover Seder right here uh, at the Randolph campus. That would be a very wonderful thing to do. But my name is Muddle Balliston. Um, I was born in the Holy Land, Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and one of the things we were told in Brooklyn was that nice Jewish boys don't go into church buildings. And so I'm already in violation of that, but I know I'm amongst friends because you've come over, you see, I haven't converted. You've come over to my side. You've come to believe that Yeshua, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and that once he came and gave first an opportunity to the Jewish people to accept him, then the doors were flung wide open so whosoever will could come. And so I'm delighted to be with you. We're going to be focusing on this, again, this, this connection between Passover and Easter. Again, I've been a believer for over uh, 35, 40 years now, coming out of a tr traditional Jewish background in Brooklyn. I've been associated uh, as a supported worker with Grace and with many other good churches that support us. And so over the years, I've been happy to work in this area. I spoke to the singles group here at Bethlehem about 10 years ago. And so we've always recommended the congregation here and look forward to what the Lord is going to do. So what we're going to do is go to a few of these slides, and these slides are going to be as much of a surprise to, to me as they are to you. But it says, because I, I, I sent the text over, but it says very simply, to get to Passover, to, I'm sorry, to get to Easter, to get to Easter, you're first going to need Passover. We're looking forward to a celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus the Messiah. It is one of the high points of the year for those of us who are born-again believers in Messiah. But the entire complex of the holiday was not Passover alone, neither was it Good Friday, I'm sorry, it wasn't Easter alone, neither was it Good Friday and Easter alone, but it was Passover into Good Friday into Easter. In the minds of the apostles, there was no separating those three events. And that's why even as I speak to you, I'm getting them confused. I'm, I'm kind of blending them all because for the early believers, they were one continuous event and they had import one to the other. So we're going to look at a number of scriptures and we say here that the scriptures link the person and the purpose of Jesus the Messiah with the Passover lamb. The two are linked completely. There is no separating these two religions. Now, that may give some of the theologians here a little bit of, of anxiety. Listen, I well understand 
that the form of Judaism that we see in the world today is a form of Judaism that rejects Jesus as the Messiah. Listen, of all people, I'm very well aware of that. But 2,000 years ago, it was something very different. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people were reading the scriptures, they were anticipating the coming of a Messiah, and when Jesus showed up, many people recognized that he was that Messiah. And so, it was only natural for the first believers in Jesus, for the first Christians, were Jewish people, were individuals who were Jewish. They didn't see themselves as formally being Jewish, but if you look in the New Testament scriptures, they identify themselves as present tense Jews. That's what the Apostle Paul does. He didn't say, I used to be a Hebrew of Hebrews, a tribe, member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I am. He continued to identify himself as a Jewish person who believes in Jesus the Messiah. The reason that that leap was so easy for him to make was that he was faithfully reading the Word of God. He was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So let's look at a couple of the passages that speak of this issue. In 1 Corinthians, we are told, for Christ the Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. That passage in 1 Corinthians is very well known to many of you. And again, it has to do with the question that was asked regarding communion. Because many times in the communion service, we will read this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So obviously here, the New Testament connects the person of Jesus the Messiah with the Passover lamb. Now, please understand that if you peruse any good textbook about church history, here's a shocking fact that you may not be aware of. And it's not just coming from me, from the greatest uh, church historians. For the first 135 years, I'm, I'm, actually the first 100 years, from around the year 30, the establishment of the church, to about the year 130 or so, the predominant, the most high-profile holiday celebration on the calendar of the early church was Passover. I say that without fear of contradiction. Uh, some people may be inclined to say, oh, no, 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 what, what do you see talking about? Actually, 10 minutes of research will, will verify that. It wasn't until the second Jewish revolt that you have this real split between the, the Jewish faction and the Christian faction. And clearly, Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish faction took Judaism in a way that was far away from the scriptures. And so, yes, in a sense, modern Judaism, and I'll say it very clearly for the record, I've said it before, modern Judaism has gone off the rails if the rails are the word of God, if the word of God is, is what we should be abiding with, then modern-day Judaism has departed from that in a number of very significant areas. And that is our mission, is we're calling them back to examine the scriptures. We're calling them to, issue, to look at this issue of Messiah. So here, the early church was very well aware of the connection of Jesus as the Passover lamb. It was Jesus himself who said, 
as often as ye do this, again, in reference to what we now call communion, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. But what was the context of that statement? The context was the last Passover supper. It was a meal that the early church continued to observe each and every year. It was the high point of their year. And so the scriptures link it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. One of the most prominent passages that talk about the coming of the Messiah is this one here in Isaiah chapter 53. This passage was written around 700 years before Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. So 700 years B.C., God is saying through the Jewish prophet, he's saying to people, here is a portrait of the coming Messiah. Here is how you are going to recognize this Messiah. This is the man who is going to be uh, the, the Savior, the Mashiach for all. And of this passage, it says very clearly, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. His punishment brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We say here he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Now, this passage was written, again, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And so it's looking forward in one sense to the coming of the Messiah. But for those of you who are carefully reading the English grammar, you're also noting that it's written in the past tense. When God says he's going to do something, it is so sure that there is a vehicle in Hebrew prophecy where it is written in the past perfect, is the grammatical term that some use. It's such a sure thing that it's written in the past perfect. That's one way of looking at it. Another people, others might see this as a passage that a redeemed Israel will say after they've come to faith. But nevertheless, we're all agreed that it speaks of Jesus the Messiah. And of the Messiah, it characterizes him as a lamb. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before a cheerer, so he opened not his mouth. So once again, there is this connection of Jesus being both Messiah and being Passover lamb. And the scriptures speak powerfully of this sort of idea. Here's a quick excursion that we don't have on the, the PowerPoint here. But if you peruse the scriptures, you're going to notice that there is a group of Old Testament scriptures that describes the Messiah and his mission in passages like this, where he suffers and he dies on behalf of others. He is gentle. He is like a lamb that is silent before it's yours. He's, he's, he's being led to the slaughter. And so one group of passages portray the Messiah that way. They are in the minority. Two-thirds of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of Messiah 
speak of him as the triumphant military hero, the one who returns at the head of a large army to bring in the kingdom of God. And so two-thirds of the passages portray the Messiah that way. So one-third portray him as a suffering servant, meek and humble. Two-thirds of the passages say, oh, no, no, he's, he's a great military hero. Well, how can both things be true? And so the rabbis concluded, well, they can't both be true, so we're going to ignore this set of verses that speak of Messiah as a humble servant, and rather, because we're under the thumb of the Romans, here we are in the land of Israel, in the land of Judea, uh, and the Romans are occupying our land. It's the year 30 AD. We're under occupation by Rome in our own land, the land of Judea. And so what type of servant do we want? Every day, Jews are suffering and dying. We don't need another suffering Jew. Rather, we need a military hero. So when Jesus presented himself as Messiah to the people of Israel, that's why they were able to dismiss him and say, no, no, we're, right now we'll give our loyalty to Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. So yes, there are these two disparate sort of portraits of the Messiah. Some verses portray him as this meek, lowly servant. Other verses portray him as this military hero. But in this incarnation, in this coming of Messiah Jesus, he is presented here in the first half of his mission. So, unlike what the rabbis thought, they imagined that because you had these two separate portraits, there had to be two different messiahs. Almost right. No, not two messiahs, but one messiah who comes twice. That's the simple solution. You have one messiah who makes a first advent as the suffering servant, as the Passover lamb, and in his return, he is the military hero. In the next passage here in Exodus um, chapter 12, here is the instruction on how the people of Israel were to observe the Passover. Um, I'm not going to rehearse all the history. I'm sure it's the basic outline is familiar to you. But you know that God called a man named Avram. We know him better today as Abraham. And Abram was called out of a pagan background. And Abraham was not Jewish. But by God's decree, he said that you're going to be the, the progenitor. You're going to be the, the first Jewish man. You're going to have a number of children. But one of them, only Isaac, will be the son of promise. Isaac would have uh, Jacob and Esau, and the scriptures say, Jacob have I loved. From Jacob, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're just going through Old Testament history at breakneck speed there. So we have these 12 tribes of Israel, and to the people of Israel, God gave the land of Israel. All is fine, except there was a drought in the land of Israel. The people temporarily go down into Egypt to sojourn. Things were nice in Egypt for a while. They were given a you know, a nice neighborhood to live in. It was like the Randolph, New Jersey of Egypt. Nice Jewish neighborhood. And so things were fine until the scriptures say there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And all of a sudden the tables were turned and the Jewish people were enslaved. Finally, they cried out to God. God heard their cry 
and said, I'm going to redeem you from slavery. How? He's going to redeem them by means of the Passover lamb. How in the world is that going to happen? Tell all Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man should take a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the 14th day, uh, keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in Exodus chapter 12, Moses says you're going to take a lamb, you're going to set the lamb aside on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Nisan is in the middle of the year, um, March, April. By the way, today, just a little trivia here, it is very appropriate for me to say to you today, Happy New Year, because today actually happens to be the first of Nisan. It's the first day in the biblical New Year if you look at the calendar in Leviticus 23. Um, why are Jewish people celebrating New Year's then in September? It's a long story. I, te- <laughs> I teach Jewish history, that's a whole nother, it's a gantzik ashikta, like we say in Yiddish. Uh, and so, on this day of the 10th day of Nisan, they were to select a flo- uh, from their flocks a young male lamb approaching its physical prime of life. The lamb had to be without spot or blemish. Then, here in the next slide, it says there in verse 21 of Exodus 12, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. Then take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a leafy weed that grows in Egypt. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and apply some of the blood to the lintel and the two doorposts. In essence, what was going to happen that night was that the Lord was going to pass through Egypt in this way. In uh, 1223, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door of your house and will not allow the destroyer to enter into your houses to smite you. You shall observe this ceremony for you and for your children forever. Why is this happening? Because the Jewish people were in slavery in Egypt. Egypt is a pagan nation. They're worshiping nature, they're worshiping the River Nile. They were given many opportunities to worship the one true God, the God of heaven, the God of creation. In fact, in the Exodus narrative, there is an amazing little uh, segment where one by one by one, in nine initial phases, the God of creation demonstrates his superiority over the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians believed um, in the, uh, the river Nile as a god. And so for those of you of a certain age, you may remember that in the movie, uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, there he is, there's Charlton Heston, he raises his staff. And in that fabulous uh, 1956 special effects, the river Nile turns to blood. Uh, You would have thought that Pharaoh would have recognized that the God of Israel is much more powerful than the fake gods of Egypt. 
But after each one of these plagues, Pharaoh dug his heels in and hardened his heart. And so God hardened his heart. Every single one of them. If you go to the museum in New York City, perhaps the youth group will see this uh, on their trip. Go to the museum and go to see some of the Egyptology uh, exhibits. One of the strange things you will notice there is oftentimes they will have these, these, these bas reliefs, these, these kind of 3D sculptures of frogs on pedestals. They actually worship frogs. And so during one of the plagues, God said, hey, I heard you guys like frogs. <laughs> and he gave them frogs all over Egypt. The place was covered with them. One by one by one, God would demonstrate his superiority over the false gods of Egypt. Again, God doesn't lower the boom all of a sudden and just you know, bring judgment. But after each one of these plagues, read the narrative. There was an opportunity to open your eyes to recognize that he's God and you're not. And that you'd better go in his direction because going out on your own direction is a futile sort of pursuit. And so after these nine initial plagues, with no response, with only a hardening of the heart, finally there is a final tenth plague here. And this plague would be the worst of all of them, and it would result in the death of every firstborn child. Because on that night, Moses, the angel of the Lord, Moses told them that the angel of the Lord would pass through Egypt and he'd come to the first home and judge that home for its sin and rebellion. And in the morning, a horrible cry would go up as parents discovered their firstborn dead. He'd come to the second home and judge that home for its sin and rebellion. And once again, there would be this horrible cry that would go up from Egypt. But then he would come to your home and if you had applied the blood of the Passover lamb to your doorway in just the way that he had mentioned here, again, every firstborn would die unless you did exactly what was instructed here. Only then would the angel of the Lord pass over your home. And you would live, and particularly your firstborn would live, but only because you had to follow the instruction that was given here by Moses. I'm curious, just a show of hands, how many of you here are the firstborn in your family? You're the oldest child. You would have been listening very carefully to these words. You know, if dad said, oh no, you see, I have a membership in, in the church or synagogue of my choice down the street, and, and the, the pastor there, always oh, a very religious fellow, he's going he's to put the blood on the door where we have our membership. That will cover us, right? And you're saying, no, pop, put the blood on our door. The blood needs to go on each individual door because that night, as the angel of the Lord is passing over Egypt, looking at each home, there's only one symbol that identifies your home as one that is trusting in the finished work of what God is going to do. And that one symbol is the blood of a pure and spotless Passover lamb put on your doorways. 
not only would it have to be put on the doorway, but the scripture says here, you shall put it on the lintel of the doorway. In, in, um, if you read all of Exodus 12, you'll see that this is what they had to do. And it's summarized here. They were to go to their door. There was a clay basin at the bottom of the door frame. Um, it was a catch basin. Archaeologists have seen these. The homes of slaves were simple affairs. Mud floor inside, mud outside. A catch basin stood in the middle of the doorway on the ground. They were told to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb that is in that basin. And they were told then to apply the blood, and it's in the singular, strike it once, to the lintel, that top horizontal crossbeam that would have gone right across the top of the door. Strike it once. Then it says, strike thee, in your English translation here says, strike the two doorposts, except in the original Hebrew text, there's just one word. It's the word mizuzot, strike the mizuzot with the blood. I don't have one here, but um, next year when we do a demonstration, I'll show you. But many of you must be familiar with the small wooden box, a mezuzah. Um, in the Randolph area, just about every Jewish home would have on the right-hand doorpost, as you're approaching the door, Coming up to the door on the right-hand doorpost, at eye level, would be a small box, a mezuzah. The box is there in obedience to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, in Hebrew, it says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, and you shall write these words as a testimony on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And so people will have scribes take a quill pen, write out that verse on a piece of parchment. The scroll is then rolled up in a small piece, put it in a hollowed out wooden box, about three inches long, and the box is fastened to the doorframe. That box is called the mezuzah. However, scholars tell us it's called the mezuzah because the part of the doorframe is called a mezuzah. That's the root word of that part of the door. But in this passage here, it says that the blood had to be applied on the mezuzot, feminine plural. So the blood had to be applied on both door posts at eye level. So here's what you had to do. You had to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of, and that is in the basin, strike first the lintel of the door once, come across, strike this doorpost, and strike that doorpost. You've gone from the basin to the lintel to this doorpost to the other doorpost. What have you done? You have made the symbol of the cross. The year is 1,300 BC. And in 1,300 years before Jesus would be born, God is telling my Jewish people, that the one and only way to identify your home to me as one that is following in what I have commanded, what I've revealed to this generation, is to take the blood of an innocent Passover lamb, apply it to your doorways in the shape of a cross. In that way only will your home be recognized as a home that is trusting in the finished work of what God is about to do.
Scriptures tell us that it's appointed once for an individual to die and then the judgment. When God looks at each one of us in judgment, once again, he will be looking for only one thing. And that is, as he looks at the the doorways of your heart, he's going to be looking to see if you've applied to yourself individually the blood of the greater Passover lamb, Jesus the Messiah, which is the only Passover lamb blood available today, if you've applied it by faith and saying, no, I'm not worthy to be judged on my own account, I would fail. If, If God judged iniquity, who would stand, the scriptures say. Therefore, I plead the blood of Messiah. He's in front of me. He is my shield. He is my buckler, as the old hymn says. He is the one who represents me to God. He is my Jewish defense attorney. He's the one who's going to plead my case. And he's never lost a case. And so the whole imagery of Scripture connects these things. It connects the idea that he is our Passover lamb. All this comes together here in the last Passover supper there in Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat of it. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a jar of water. Follow him and tell the master of the house, the rabbi says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So, it was the habit of Jesus and all the apostles from earliest childhood to celebrate the Passover. They would listen to the story of how it was by means of this ancient Passover lamb that we were redeemed from, and get the expression here, we were redeemed from physical bondage in the house of Egypt. The people of Israel were in physical bondage, and they were then released from that physical bondage. However, all of us, all of mankind, is in a bondage to something far more diabolical. We're in bondage to the cycle of sin and death and sin and death. As bad as bondage and slavery to Egypt might have been, that was just for one people. Bondage to sin and death and sin and death results in an eternity separated from God. And so, just as the first Passover lamb Its blood shed in Egypt would provide freedom from physical bondage in Egypt. Here, Jesus was about to unpack for them in this last Passover supper the far greater meaning of Passover. And really, this is not, what I'm telling you now is not a devotional sort of interpretation but really it is the ultimate meaning of Passover. We have this greater Passover lamb. The first Passover lamb shedding his blood so that individual families might be saved from slavery in Egypt. 
But you and I and the entire human race are in bondage to the cycle of sin and death and sin and death. What can grab us out of that hopeless cycle? So here in the Luke chapter 22 passage, Jesus is sitting down with the apostles and he says to them here in verse um, seven, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't go to that, but here is, he's asking about eating the Passover with his disciples. It was something that they did regularly. And then once they eat the Passover, they, the idea is that there's a reason we're doing it. Look at the last portion of this, this passage here. Jesus said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Let me go to the next one. Earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Really, it was for that Passover that Jesus was born. It was for that Passover that his entire mission had been focused. And really, it was for that Passover where he would come and he would shed his blood, just as the ancient Passover lamb had his blood shed for the sins of just a single household, but, just, but then, of course, applied to the door. Applied how? Applied in the shape of a cross. So, too, here at this last Passover meal, Jesus took something that they were all very familiar with. He took the story of the ancient Passover, the redemption from physical slavery, and in essence said to them, yet all of you are in slavery to something that has even a stronger grip on you than the Egyptians had. And that slavery, once again, is to the cycle of sin and death and sin and death. And he is hinting at this point at the idea that it's for the kingdom. This, this cup, all of these things ultimately point forward to the time when Messiah himself will make a sacrificial uh, sort of uh, point for them that he will suffer and die in their place. Here in Luke chapter 22, he says, then he took a cup and he gave it uh, to them. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. This is at the end of the last Passover supper. Once again, it's a traditional Passover meal. Every individual in the room had celebrated that every single year of their life. Passover was nothing new, but having it unpacked, having it revealed that we're not here merely to celebrate our redemption from physical bondage 1,300 years ago, but rather what is about to happen, you're not going to fully understand, but one day you will. That in essence, Jesus is alerting them to the fact that there is a kingdom of heaven coming and their life with him will be lived in that way. And so he takes the two central elements of the Passover. And let me go back here. And so he, he took the cup. He raises the cup and says the traditional blessing, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei puri hagafen. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who, takes, who, who brings forth the, the fruit of the vine. And then he takes the bread and he breaks the, the matzah, the unleavened bread. And he says, the same Hebrew blessing the Jewish people say today, verbatim, they say the exact same words that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMotzi Lechem Min HaAretz Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. And he broke the bread, and Jesus then distributed it to all those at the table. In that, he took these two central elements of Passover, elements that they were very familiar with, and basically saying to them, here's the new meaning for this. Actually, it's not so new. It was there all the time. It was just hidden to you. All these things were hidden to you, but they were always true because the greater Passover lamb is now going to come and accomplish these things. And so there's the end of the verse. This cup, he gives to them the fruit of the vine. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He, that very evening, is letting them understand that he's going to go to the cross the next day. He will then suffer and die, not for anything that he had done, but for all of their benefit. And they're going to be stepping out of the old Mosaic covenant back here, and they're going to be stepping into a brand new relationship with him, a brand new relationship with the Lord God of heaven, that is not any longer based, their, their, their fellowship with God would not be based on how they kept the law. Now, salvation has always been through faith. So it's, this is not a salvation issue, but it's a fellowship issue, which in the Old Testament for Jewish people was based on Mosaic law. He's basically saying, step forward to me into this new covenant. You're no longer under law, but now you're here in grace. I stand before you this morning as a person who has stepped out of Mosaic law and has stepped into grace because my relationship with God is not based upon rules and regulations in Mosaic law. My relationship with God is based on the fact that I've exercised personal faith in the finished work of Jesus, my Messiah, the Savior of all who will come to him. And I've exercised faith in his shed blood, which alone, as the Passover lamb, is able to accomplish redemption from sin. And that's what this whole passage intimates, uh, that this blood of the new covenant uh, which is being poured out for you. And it culminates in this whole idea for, for Christ, our Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. The Messiah is not only for Israel, but the Messiah is for all who will call upon him. That is what brings together 
these two groups of Jews and Christians because the ultimate issue, friends, once you boil away all the cultural things, differences in style and politics and all these sorts of things that are passing away, it all comes down to just one question. This is the only question that will ever matter. Your answer to this question is the only answer you can ever give that will ever matter. And the question is simply this. Was Jesus whom he claimed to be? Was Jesus whom he claimed to be? He came to my people and he presented himself as the Messiah. He demonstrated his messianic office by means of miracles. And three days later, he conquered the grave and rose from the dust and is living today to make intercession for us. So the only answer, the only question that will ever matter is, was Jesus whom he claimed to be? That's why John the Baptist said here in, first, for in John, the, chapter, the Gospel of John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God stands ready to take away the sin of whosoever calls upon him. But there has to be an individual response. Just as each individual home back in ancient Egypt had to individually apply the blood of the Lamb to the door, there was no corporate salvation, there was no synagogue or church salvation, it was only you personally appropriating the blood for yourself. The question stands before us today. Is Jesus whom he claimed to be, and what have you done about that? If you've come to a saving knowledge of Messiah Jesus, and, and this church from this place has had a 100-year reputation, at least the church has, maybe not in this location, but... Bethlehem Church has had a reputation of broadcasting the gospel to a very needy world. It's a reputation and it's a legacy that God is going to honor and which he will continue to honor through this new partnership with the folks in Netcong. And only good things can come out of that because neither of us <laughs> bring anything to the table other than this truth. <laughs> we don't have anything at Netcon to give to you other than this truth, was that Jesus the Messiah has been sacrificed and he lives and reigns. And so this is a wonderful way for us to begin this, this new going forth together in these two campuses, is to recognize that this is the only message that matters and this is the message we will continue to preach until the Lord returns, that Messiah Jesus has arrived. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a hymn of praise. Our Lord God, we, we praise you. We thank you for so great a salvation. We thank you that so long ago you promised to send to the world the Messiah. You kept your promise, and you sent Jesus. Lord God, we thank you that when we come to trust in him, he takes our sin as far as east is from the west.
so far does he take our sin away. Lord God, we thank you for that precious truth. And we pray now that you would lead us out with, with praise, with thanksgiving, and that we would go with you. Lord God, we thank you then for this, this new thing that you are doing. We look forward to years together of preaching Messiah Jesus crucified and risen until you return. Lord God, we pray these things. B'shem Yeshua Meshachenu, in the matchless name of Jesus our Messiah. Amen and amen.